So I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. We get right into the text and right into God's message. And we see a tremendous movement of God. Certainly in the book of Acts, we see people as they hear what God has done. And as they begin to push out to others to let others know that Jesus is alive. That is going to be the message. That Jesus came. That Jesus died. But that Jesus is alive. And somehow that makes a difference in people's hearts and lives. In Acts chapter 13 in particular. You see the shift from the Jerusalem church to the church there at Antioch, the first predominantly Gentile church. And you see them beginning to send out more and more missionaries. In particular, they send out a duo called Paul and Barnabas. And they send them in different areas to let people know the great message of God. And as they start out, they go over to Cyprus and eventually they begin to make their way up to Antioch in Pisidia. Notice that in scripture. They come from Antioch in Syria and they move all the way up to Antioch in Pisidia in present day Turkey. Now, why would they have to designate this area? Because there are two Antiochs, right? It's, it's kind of, I was thinking of this as I was working through this scripture. That there are places where you have the same name for the city. For example, Atlanta. You may not have known this, but there is an Atlanta, Georgia, and an Atlanta, Texas, and Louisiana. See, some of you think in Louisiana, right? There are other Atlantas. Some of you, you ever been? I've never, Atlanta, Louisiana, you've been there? God bless you. <laughs> I'm proud you found your way back, all right? Atlanta, Texas, there it's right out of Dallas or so. I've got friends over there. So you have to kind of add because you want to make sure that you're speaking of the right Atlanta. It's kind of like Saltillo. <laughs> there is a Saltillo, Mexico, and there's a much more famous Saltillo, Mississippi. <laughs> the hometown of the one and only pastor of Temple Baptist Church. You've heard that one, right? South Hello, Mississippi. Now you have. So in the Bible, you had different name, the same names of different cities. So what we're told here is that Paul goes into Antioch of Pisidia, up into Turkey. And when he goes into that area, just like he always does, if there's a synagogue in the city, he's going to find himself in the synagogue. That's his missionary strategy, always. Go to the place where you can best connect with the people. And for Paul, it is connecting with those that he has something in common with, those that he has a shared history with, and he goes to the synagogue. Now, I love the way this works out, okay? I love the way he gets an opportunity to preach the gospel and to share with them about the resurrection. Because basically, he goes into the worship center, he goes into this synagogue, and he sits there as they read through the scriptures, as they pray. And there comes a time in the service where they look around and they recognize that they have guests. And they invite those guests to say something. Now, aren't you proud we're gonna, not going to make some of you guests say something today? But basically, they would look back and they would recognize that there were guests. Brother BK, it was kind of back in the day, like when visiting preachers would come. 
And they would be there maybe on a Sunday night or something like that. And at the end of the service, a lot of times the pastor would look back at the other pastor. He said, we're very grateful that you're here. Would you dismiss us in a word of prayer? It was kind of like the proper thing to do, the appropriate thing. So here in the synagogue, they look up and there's Paul. And don't forget, not long ago, he was Saul. And he was a great teacher. He was moving up the ladder in the Jewish religious circles. And they say, Saul, would you like to share something with us today? You could almost sense it, can't you? You bet I would. You bet I'd like to talk to you today. Hey, you don't have to ask a preacher twice, do you? To say something. And Paul comes and he begins to share. Now we pick up in the middle of the sermon in verse 20. We pick up in the middle of the sermon. So that shouldn't surprise some of you because some of you, I think you pick up in the middle of my sermon a lot of times. Jim Pierce, you wake this morning. It is Easter. All right, buddy. They pick up. We want to pick up in the middle of the sermon and listen to what Paul says. Look in verse 20. He says, after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel, the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. We pick up in the middle of a history lesson. This is the historical part of the message, the historical part of the sermon. What Paul has done is he has tried to connect the history of the people of Israel to the coming of Jesus and the work of Jesus. Basically, what you've seen here in this passage, what he's been talking about is that God chose this nation. God chose Israel, made them a special people, and that God had delivered them out of Egypt, that God had led them in the wilderness, even though they wandered for 40 years. (coughs) He was there with them. And then he was there guiding every moment of the conquest over seven different nations. They conquered because of God and his presence with them. And now, he says, there were the time of the judges. You know, I love history. I really do. I'm not going to give you a historical lesson this morning, but I do love history. Saw Coach Bud a moment ago, Coach Barmore. I mean, folks who have taught history. I love it. I envy those folks sometimes because I just love to immerse myself in history itself and, and, and just learn and just see what has happened in the past because we see faithfulness in history. And what Paul is saying to these that he has a kinship with. He's saying to them that God has always been with us. And I want you to hear this. This, If I were to outline his sermon, I would say first that he is, he is reminding them that history records his story. That is, history itself records the story of God. That the whole of history, the whole of what we have seen in the past is the record of God and his movement. Our God has always been about involving himself in the lives of his people. He intervenes on behalf of his people. Even though we hear these individuals, this nation called Israel, even though we hear about their freedom from Egypt, we know that it was God who initiated that freedom, that God was the one who brought them out. Even though we hear about the conquest of the seven nations, we know that those soldiers may be... They may have been bearing arms, but we know it was God that was making every strike against the enemy. God was the one always involved in the history of his people. Hey, God is still the one 
involved in the history and the work of his people. God is still the one who is empowering us and encouraging us each day. Even though certain things happen and circumstances come, we know that our God is the one who works toward his will and toward our benefit. Because history records his story. Fast forward a little bit, verse 22, Paul continued the sermon and he said, And when he had removed him, that is Saul, he raised up, notice the text, raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. He says, even from that moment, I brought you David. And over the last few weeks in particular, we've talked about David, we've talked about his life, and we know how the people of God elevated David. Right? David was the one that really brought forth a united kingdom. David was the one who had gone out and fought the battles for the people and had led them so admirably. And even though he was human and he had mistakes in his life, we know that he had a heart for God. We know that he even led his people spiritually. All the other kings, all the other kings were judged by this one king, David. Go back and read it. Go back and read the writings of the Chronicles. Go back and read the kings. And you'll see that every other king that came after him was judged by his standard. Whether or not they did right as David had done right. Or whether or not they had fallen short of the glory. And they had departed from the way of their father, David. So here Paul says, God gave us David. God raised him up and placed him on the throne. Oh, but get this. Verse 23. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Listen to the way he's addressing this audience. Most of these folks who had come from a Jewish background, or at the very least, they were God-fearers of the New Testament. God-fearers were those who had come into the Jewish circles. They had not totally committed themselves to the customs and the traditions of the Jews, but they recognized that Yahweh God was the only God. So here he is addressing those from the Jewish background and the Gentiles who had come in and were God-fearers, who were recognizing Yahweh as God. And he says to them, you know, David, that one that we elevate, the one that God himself raised up, that God promised that he would bring from his seed, that he would bring from his family, this savior, the savior of Israel. Well, I'm here to declare to you today that it is fulfilled in this person, in this individual that we refer to as Jesus. What a sermon. And this must have been where it simply took off. You know, Dr. Truett used to say of sermons that you start low, you go slow, you rise higher, and you take fire. <laughs> I'm thinking this is where he's beginning to rise higher. And the message is about to take fire. Because he is telling the people that Jesus is the fulfillment of that promise. That Jesus was that Messiah that had been promised. Oh, and the people had been looking forward to this Davidic king. We talked about it last week. We know that the people on Palm Sunday came and in some way they recognized him as this messianic king. 
They didn't, they didn't understand exactly what he was going to do or what he was going to fulfill. And as a matter of fact, their expectations were misplaced. But this Jesus was the Messiah. And Paul proclaims this gladly. He says, verse 23 again, God raised up. Notice David had been raised up by God. Now he says God had raised up this Savior, Jesus. In other words, God was at work in this, in this time. All of history, all that had happened was actually the story of God and how God was the hero of everything that had happened. And after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Even the testimony of John the Baptist had borne out that Jesus was the promised king, the promised Messiah. Verse 26, Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him nor even the voices of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And they found no cause for death in him. They asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Paul says, even those tough times of history that we reflect upon, even those dark moments of where the religious leaders came and conspired, even in that dark moment of Pilate's condemnation, even though Pilate had determined him to be innocent, even in that moment of condemnation, God himself was at work. Because God is active in the great moments, in the bright moments. And our God is still active during the difficult, dark days as well. Understand, we come on Sunday and we give thanks to God for the resurrection power. But our God's work did not begin Sunday morning. Our God had been active for all of eternity. When God spoke in those first Days, And what we call the proto-gospel, where he said that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. Even at that moment in Genesis, we know that God had a plan and God was working because he had had a plan for all of eternity. And God was redemptively working all throughout Scripture, through the great bright moments, through the difficult dark days. Our God was working. And here in this passage it says... The religious leaders, they didn't even realize what they were doing when they put Jesus to death. Even though they had scripture after scripture, even though they sat in services and they heard it over and over and over. They didn't recognize that they were fulfilling the prophecies of the Old Testament. Pilate, when he was condemning this man to death, he never realized what he was doing. But that is the greatness of our God. That is the awesome superiority of our God. That no matter what or or motives that people may have, our God is big enough and great enough to triumph over every 
every, over every motive that we have. Hey, and there's not a pagan ruler or king on this earth that will not bow to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see, history itself is his story. All of it. God is the one who orchestrates events. Our God is the one who is bringing together each and every moment and circumstance to fulfill His perfect will for His glory and for our good. Verse 29, when they had fulfilled all that was written Him, they took Him down from the tree and laid Him in a tomb. John chapter 19, the Gospel of John, tells us that they put Him in a new tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus, the rulers came and they took his body and they placed it in a tomb. Don't miss this. Listen to me. Don't miss what Paul's saying. Paul's saying there is no doubt that Jesus was dead. Physically, Jesus was dead. He did not swoon. He did not pass out for a moment and revive in a cold tomb. He wasn't some type of conspiracy where he just faked his death. He was dead. They put him in a tomb and they left him there. Verse 30. Okay? Just go ahead and just underline this. Highlight this. Whatever you want to do. Some of you got the old, old way of looking at things. Some of you got these new iPads and iPhones and all. Whatever you got to do, highlight it. Mark it. Verse 30. But God raised him from the dead. Amen. See, this is where, again, the pivotal moment, the transitional moment in his message where he has outlined history. He's told us that our God has been active, that, he, that history itself is his story. And now he says, but God... Oh, I love those words. I love them all throughout Scripture. When I read and I see how it says, but God. Everybody else had certain intentions. Everybody else had certain motives, but God. And God raised him from the dead. I went back in the original language. It can mean something like this. God raised him from the dead ones. In other words, there were all kinds of folks. There were all kinds of individuals that had passed off of the scene in the past. But out of all of those individuals, out of all the people that had lived through history, it was this one, Jesus, that God raised up and gave him the unique identity, the unique power over death, hell, and the grave itself. Notice verse 31. He was seen for many days to those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are witnesses to the people. He said, and you don't believe me, you go ask some of these other folks. They saw him afterwards. We're told that the disciples saw him. Certainly the women who went that morning, Peter and John, later post-resurrection appearances to the disciples. Paul tells us that there's a group of 500 different folks 500 different folks that see Jesus at one time. By the way, it's hard for 500 folks to hallucinate at one moment, right? Unless you're in Baton Rouge at LSU Stadium. Maybe that's where it is, Tiger Stadium. Just kidding, just kidding. Man, y'all so y'all got to loosen up. It's Resurrection Sunday. 
500 people are not going to hallucinate about the resurrection of Jesus. That 500 people at one time, no. And what Paul says is you go ask them. Because get this, history records his story, but his story reveals his glory. His story is what reveals the greatness of God himself, the greatness of Jesus Christ through the resurrection. And this is the message that was brought. Verse 32, and we declare to you glad tidings. The word there, again, is the idea of good news. I got some good news for you who are sitting here today. You're looking for a Messiah. God's provided a Messiah. His name is Jesus. The religious leaders, they didn't know what they were doing. They condemned him to death to fulfill the ultimate perfect will of God. Pilate participated in it unknowingly. But I want you to know that our God overcame all of those things. God raised him up, and this is good news. This is good news. It's still the good news. It's still the best news you can have. Listen. This week, you probably have seen all kind of news. You can see it from different places. And sometimes there's, a, there's even a story somehow nestled between the others that might make you smile. Might give you a delight. Maybe. Maybe. Some of you say, what news channel have you been watching lately? But maybe. There is no news like the good news of Jesus Christ. That is that Jesus is alive. That he has been resurrected. That should be the best news that you've heard all week. And that should be the news that sustains you daily. Look at what Paul went on to say. He said, these are good news. The promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus. I love the word in verse 33 and the one in verse 34. The word raised there is a different word in the original language than the previous term raised that we've seen in the English translations. In the original language, it is something like anastasis. Jeremy, Chris, you all sing that song, Oh, Praise the Name. It says anastasis. It means, it means literally to stand again. To stand again. It was used in different kinds of contexts, but it could be used to speak of the resurrection. Listen to what he says. He says, and he has caused Jesus to stand again. He was in death. He was inanimate. But God, through his power, animated that lifeless body and brought it back so that once again he could stand. He had been raised, as it was also written in the second psalm, Psalm chapter 2, verse 7 in particular, it says, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Verse 34, and that he raised, again, same word, he made him to stand again from the dead ones, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the mercies of David. Isaiah 55, 3. Verse 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. He says that the Holy One, the Messiah, Jesus, would see no corruption, no decay 
of his body. Now, when I was working this out, I thought to myself, I said, you know, the Lord hasn't like called me home yet. I still am in my physical body. I, I feel like I'm here. So, and my body already feels like it's decaying. I don't know about yours, but it already feels like it's corrupt in some way. And I think it happened probably at about the age of 33. I don't know, but maybe. <coughs> but here he's talking specifically about when he's in the grave. His body does not deteriorate because there's not enough time. Not really. It doesn't really decay. What he's saying is, is that he was not going to leave his Messiah in the grave. He was going to bring his Messiah forth to see no corruption. David, David died and his body decayed, but not David's sons, not Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was not just David's son, Jesus was David's savior. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. The resurrection itself makes all the difference in the world. You know, I was thinking through this this last week about how sometimes we get so enamored with death or maybe even tombs. I want you to think about this. Uh, I kind of worked through it this week, but I said, you know, 10 years ago or so, Leslie and I traveled over to the Holy Land. We went to Israel then we went over to Jordan and we went down to Egypt. And we stood before the pyramids. Great wonder. It was amazing to look at it. Maybe more amazing to ride the camel around the pyramids, but I mean, it was amazing to see the pyramids. What do the pyramids basically celebrate? Celebrate death. All these pyramids that were built as tombs. Of rulers? Hey, last year, I got to go over to India, and I got to visit the Taj Mahal. Man, that's cool. Beautiful marble. I don't think I really realized it until I walked into it that I was walking into a mausoleum, a tomb. You may not have known this, but the great Mughal emperor of India... This, this great ruler decided that he had a wife that he liked out of three or four, you know? And that when she died, he would just build this memorial to her and bury her there. And there's the Taj Mahal. It's a tomb. Nothing more. And, and they told me while I was over there, and I've read more, and some say this is mythical. I don't know. They told me, the guide said, that the ruler was preparing to build a black Taj Mahal across the Yarmun River so that he would mirror his wife and he'd have a black Taj Mahal. His son decided he was spending all the money and cut him off. I'm not giving any of you young guys or young ladies any kind of ideas. But interrupted the ruler's plans because they're celebrating death. In a sense, they have a tomb. Just got back from Israel. Ben, you just got back yesterday. I'm proud you're in church. You didn't use that excuse some of these other folks use every now and then. Proud to see you. 
you can visit the tomb of David. Or at least the traditional site of the tomb of David. May I say this about all those places? They contain dead things. You and I, when we go looking for the tomb of Jesus, whether it's at the traditional site, the church of the Holy Sepulchre, or whether it's where some of your hearts and my heart maybe tell us over toward the garden tomb, guess what? He's not there. We don't celebrate the tomb of the dead ones. We celebrate the empty tomb of the living one. That makes a difference. Always has, always will. You see, Tony Beza said, the cradle and the cross are of little value without the resurrection. But the cradle plus the cross plus the resurrection equals salvation. It makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in how we live. Hank Kennegraph, the old Bible answer man that some of us used to listen to, he said this. He said, what happened as a result of the resurrection is unprecedented in human history. In the span of a few hundred years, a small band of seemingly insignificant believers succeeded in turning an entire empire upside down. As has been well said, they faced the tyrant's brandish steel, the lion's gory mane, and the fires of a thousand deaths because they were utterly convinced that they, like their master, would one day rise from the grave in glorified, resurrected bodies. It made all the difference to those apostles and to those early believers. And it should make all the difference to us. Because his story reveals his glory. The resurrection itself and that power in the way we live. Paul, he knew it personally. Damascus Road, Acts chapter 9. There he was going to apprehend Christians. And what did God do? Apprehend him. The light shone. Jesus, the living one, spoke to him. And he was no longer the same. Because I want you to hear this finally as we close. His story redeems our story. He is the one, because of what He has done and His glory and His work, that can make an absolute change in our lives. Paul finishes up his message there in Antioch of Pisidia. And he speaks in this way. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren... That through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you cannot be justified by the law of Moses. He said, I want you to know it is through this one, this individual, this Jesus, that you can know forgiveness and justification. You can be free. It's only through Jesus. Forgiveness. You're not going to find it in the law. Hey, would you hear me this morning? Many of us who have been raised in the church for so long, we need to hear it once again. We are never justified 
by the laws or the traditions or any other thing that we find in church life. We're not justified. We're not freed by those things. It is only through Jesus and what he has done and what he can do in our lives that we come to forgiveness. That we come to life. Notice what he says. By him, everyone who believes is justified. The word belief is the same word for faith. In our English language, faith is a noun. It's not a verb. In our English language. It's kind of like we're talking. I want to say, Greg, I believe you. I don't say, I faith you. You'd probably look at me a little strange, right? If I said that. There's no verb. But in the original language here, there was a verb. You could literally say, I faith you. I believe, I trust. In this passage, everyone who goes on faithing is justified. Go on faithing. Because today, too many of us believe that this relationship with God is just a head thing. It's just an intellectual ascent. Yeah, we came here today. We believe Jesus died and rose again. We believe that stuff. One of the last polls I saw here in the United States, 80% of the people believed that Jesus was resurrected. So you're in good company. But the problem is, it goes beyond you just assenting that Jesus was resurrected. It goes beyond just saying, hey, I live in a Christian culture. Well, that's what we affirm. Faith is total surrender, complete giving yourself away to one who is greater than you. And when you say that you are believing, you are trusting, you are faithing him, that means that you come, and yes, you know it here, but you also have to know it in your heart, in your life. You have to give all of yourself to him. It is a complete surrender. And only through that complete surrender do you come to freedom. One word of caution that Paul will give as he completes his message. He says in verse 40, Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. He said, you better beware, you better be careful. Because you've heard the prophets, you've heard the scriptures, but you're about to miss the Messiah and the Savior. The one that I said could bring you forgiveness and life. You're about to miss Jesus. And folks, this morning as we come to this place, there are many of us that have completely surrendered our lives to Him. We've experienced forgiveness. But there are some of us here this morning that probably could answer all the questions that most other church folks could. We could recite it off. We've been through enough messages. We've heard enough from our Sunday school teachers that we could talk the talk. But beware, be careful that you know all of the traditions and all of the prophecies and all of the other things.
and you still miss Jesus. 80% of the United States believes that Jesus was resurrected. But 80% of the people of the United States are not saved. We must completely surrender our lives and our hearts to Him to know true salvation. And it can make a change. It can make a change. Ask Paul. I said to you, you had that Damascus Road experience. Do you remember what he was doing again before that? Well, the first time we're introduced to him, his name is Saul. And he's there ascending to the death of Stephen. They're bringing Stephen's clothes. They're bringing the clothes to Saul as he gives his approval to kill this believer. The scripture says in Acts chapter 8 that he was making havoc among the church, taking men and women from their homes and dragging them to prison. Sounds like a bad guy, right? Sounds like somebody that needed some forgiveness. What happened? Jesus. Damascus Road. Jesus changed his life, and before you know it, he's standing in Antioch of Pisidia, and he's preaching in a synagogue the true, unadulterated gospel of Christ. Because that's the power of the resurrection. When you come in contact with him, when you see him, when you know he's alive and he's not dead, when you commit yourself to follow him and give yourself totally to him, it is amazing how he would change your life. Someone has said that Paul's preaching, it either brought revival or rebellion wherever he went. Folks, may we hear his message anew and afresh today. May we know that Jesus is alive and may that bring renewal to our hearts as believers to respond to him. And for those who haven't accepted him, may this be a day when they just commit it all, give it all, whether in this service, whether you catch me afterwards, wherever it is, you know what? You can pray to him just as we pointed out earlier in the service. And you can give it all to him and accept him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this day. God, thank you for your power. Thank you for life. And this day collectively, we as believers in this place, we renew our commitment. We renew ourselves as we come before you to follow you completely. Father, help us to live every day in the resurrection. Help us to take the story to others. God, also, I know in a crowd like this, there are some people in this place that are lost. God, tug at their heart right now. Through your spirit, just squeeze it and convict them of where they are. And remind them that no matter what they've done, just as Paul, no matter what they've done, you can forgive them and save them. God, stir in us, change us, transform us. 
Help us to be courageous and make decisions we need to make during this time of commitment, even afterwards as we seek people out. Extend your invitation to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.